God is still speaking. We just have to be able to translate what God is saying into a language we all understand in our culture. Mind Body Gems podcast. Today we're going to be speaking with Reverend Sylvia Mosley, who's now so now also a published author. She's going to be talking about how she started this work in ministry with inside the prison systems as a chaplain. Reverend Mosley also shares her personal connection to the work. We're also going to hear more about her book, You Can't Heal What You Hide. have with us Reverend Sylvia Mosley. Um, we met her a few years back and um, we just recognized how amazing she was in the work that she was doing in the re-entry. And we met you through the re-entry coalition, correct? Yes. So, um, I was with you too. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Um, as we noticed when we were there, that you really, really have to have emotional fortitude and you also have to have the language in which to speak and working in this specific area and we wanted to know like how did you start even working with the criminal justice system i think that for me god called me a long time ago when i was in brooklyn new york and i say that because i had a brother that came back from vietnam addicted to drugs and when one person goes to prison, the whole family goes to prison. And I had a father that said he would never visit one of his children in prison. But my dad's wife did go. And because all of the prisons in upstate New York, just about all of them are populated by seven zip codes from New York City. So the state prisons are upstate, which are a long bus ride and you spend the night away from home. It's a long distance to get to a prison upstate. If you live in Brooklyn or Jamaica or Harlem, you are talking about overnight trip. And so my dad's wife would go, and I never wanted her to go alone, so I would go with her. And I believe that even then God was calling me to prison ministry because I was beginning to get accustomed to hearing the gates slam and lock and the, the COs uh, at that time in upstate New York were predominantly Caucasian. Okay. And the inmates were predominantly African-American and Latinx. And that were in the prison. Like I said, they came from seven zip codes out of New York City. And, and so many times family members were treated as if they had done something wrong as well. Uh, they weren't greeted and and talked to as if they were family. They were greeted roughly as if they were an inconvenience. And so I, I became very aware of how oppressive the environment was. 
Now, I was in college at the time when I was doing that. It never occurred to me to become involved in prison ministry. Uh, I left New York, joined the military, went to Washington State, worked for the feds, uh, came to Ohio. And it was in Ohio that I, I became uh, acutely aware in, and as a member of my church because I was in recovery at the time. Okay. Uh, I got to a point in my life where I had to make the choice, do I want to live or do I want to die? And I wow. decided I wanted to live and not die. Uh, because along the way, my husband had died when my son was six months old. And I got real angry with God about that. Uh, as my, my husband died, my two sisters died. Uh, I lost two brothers along the way. And so each time uh, someone in my family died, when I was in the military, my husband died. I had a chaplain come to my house and say, Sergeant Mosley, the reason your husband is dead is because God needed another flower in his garden. And, and I thought to myself at the time, what the hell kind of God is that? Right? And so I, I was angry with God. I was angry, angry, angry. And what happens with, with me and what I've seen happen with others, that they get angry with God when God didn't answer the prayer. God, where was you when I was being raped? Where were you when my mother was abusing me? Where was you when I was left alone? I cried out to you, God, and you didn't answer. Where were you? And and that anger internalizes and becomes turned against ourselves. So my behavior became very self-destructive. Okay. And so I acted out in drugs and alcohol and sexuality, all kinds. I was so angry, I kept hurting myself. And so it got me to a point in my life where I, I realized I was either going to live or die. And, and I decided. So we, yeah, like when when so many things are piled upon you as in your life experiences had, at what point was it and what, what was that particular experience that just made you decide, made you decide that you wanted to get up out the mud? I saw myself dying. I saw myself dying. I couldn't eat but I could drink. I was sick all the time. When, when I stopped drinking and tried to work, I would go, I would have withdrawals. I would be shaken. And, and so I, I had enough, a very little, but enough self-awareness to see that I was going to die. And then I had a boss that told me that if I didn't get help, I was going to lose my job. So I knew nobody in my family was going to take care of my kids or me if I became homeless and, and out on the street. So I, my back was up against the wall and I had to make a choice. Am I going to stay in denial that I'm okay and I've got this because i got this outward facade that I'm okay. i got the house and the car and the education and the job, but I'm dumped to up from the floor. I got alcohols the smell coming out of my pores. So so I had to decide, what are you going to do? Are you going to live or die? So I, I checked myself into treatment. I went into treatment, and when I called, they said, um, how much do you drink? And when I told them, they said, oh, don't stop drinking. And I thought to myself, well, I like treatment, right? Well, I didn't know at the time. I had so much alcohol in my system that if I had stopped abruptly, I would have went immediately into DTs and I would have died. I would have had convulsions and died. 
because I had so much alcohol in my system. Wow. So I had to be hospitalized and go through detox before I could stop drinking and stop putting drugs in my body. As your mind started to clear up and, you know, you go through that detox, what was your next thoughts? Like, what was your next thoughts as far as what you wanted to do with life in life? Well, I don't know. I can't even sit here and say my mind was clearing up because as I was in detox, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I could just smoke marijuana, right? Um, Because how do people celebrate their birthdays if you don't get high? What about New Year's? What am I going to do New Year's Eve? What am I going to celebrate? Uh, and what I've got all these these are thoughts that I have in my head. Right, that's because the conditioning. That's the conditioning. Right. How am I going to live my life now? Right when this is all I've ever done and this is all I know to do. And so I thank God for for the rooms of recovery and NA and AA meetings that I went to because I start learning how to live life without the use of drugs. And alcohol is a drug. And, and that was a process for me to learn how to live life without the use of drugs. And, and what I finally realized as I was going to meetings is that there were no theologians in the rooms of recovery. They were making me crazy with pray, don't pray, ask God to keep clean, don't pray and ask for anything for yourself. I'm like, well, wait a minute, you just said pray and ask God to keep you clean. What do you mean you don't ask anything? So I said, let me go to a church and find out something about God. Let me sit down and learn. And that's wow. when I got involved in my church. And okay. I got involved in ministry because service is a part of recovery. Okay. You have by giving back. And so I had a strong urge to serve. Even when I was in college in New York, I was a part of Young Democrats. I served in various ways politically. And so service came natural to me to serve and to reach out and help. So I, I became a part of the prison ministry at my church. And that's when I got involved. We were going this when the work they had the workhouse open at Dayton. Okay. To the county jail. Right. But we called it prison ministry, but we were not going to prison. We were going to the workhouse and the county jail. Both of those institutions are different from prison. Right. And Absolutely. Right. A lot of people, they use the terms interchangeably, jail and prison, and they're not the same thing. And so it so happened that probably about a year later, after I joined and became a part, the leader of the prison ministry in our church stepped down and there was no one else to take his place. And so they asked me and I said, sure. Well, the first thing I did was I started looking at where are their prisons at? in our area where people that are in prison will be coming back to. And so I started contacting the prisons that were closest to where my church was located. And that was Lebanon, uh, London, Madison, Warren Correctional, those prisons that are around that area, because those are prisons. 
we were a jail ministry. We were not a prison ministry because we were not going to the prison. And so once I start contacting the chaplains and we start setting up services to go in and to preach services and, and to have that interaction, um, I thought we was doing something. I yeah. Did, I did. Yeah. <laughs> I well, we, we know that, you know, we start out in a place and realize that we really go down as a whole rabbit hole in the thick of things. I think what you said differently, um, what I've noticed is that you service, you were looking for people coming out. And oftentimes when there is a prison ministry, churches go in, but a lot of times when the people get out and they come knocking on the church's door, the church is like, hey, okay, well, you know. The buck stopped when you was in there. But that's what you just said that was different is that you were looking for people to come out coming and out, when they were getting out because that you wanted to still be of service to them. Right. And that right there within itself is just different because, again, if you talk to some people who have been incarcerated, they said the same churches that come in that when they got out, they went knocking on the door and they treated them as, you know, I'm sorry, like, we, we, we don't have any anything for you. And so right. the, another thing that I noticed in talking to you in there was like, we agreed is about the language in which you speak and how you speak to people who have been incarcerated. And I think they get out and they have a scarlet letter already. They feel like they're less than because of the language that is used once you walk through those doors. Right. Absolutely. And, and you're so right. One of the things that I saw that I identified with when I started going into the jails, even before we got to the prison, was I saw men and women just like me. That had I grew up in the ghettos of Brooklyn. My mother moved from one ghetto to the next ghetto to the next ghetto, trying to get out the ghetto. I saw young men and women just like me that had grown up in 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 environments very similar to mine, that my father was abusive. He beat my mother. Every man my mother brought home beat her. Uh, there was addiction all throughout my family. And so the first thing that struck me was that the people that go into prison, as well-meaning as they are, have no idea about the population they're serving. They don't know who they are. They've not identified what issues they have. And so to bring in a King James Version Bible to a population that many of them have dropped out of school, many of them have, have not had good experiences academically, and now you bring a King James Version Bible, which is written in 16th century English, which pretty much says, in order for you to get with God, you got to learn a whole new language. Because the language you speak, God don't speak that language. Here, this is what God speaks. That immediately turns people off. So one of the things that I did that I feel real good about even now is that I sent a letter out to all the churches in my area, the ones that I know that weren't going into the prison. And I said, okay, I get it. You're not going into prison. But here's how you can support prison ministry. Give us some money or buy us some life recovery Bibles that have the 12 steps in them that are written in New Living Translation English version, everyday English language that we can all read and understand and that we can see ourselves. So you don't go buy me some Bibles. 
And I got a huge response back from the churches. They purchased Bibles. They gave me money for Bibles. All right, all right. (laughs) Check. This verse is written with sharp lead like bullets when I write rhymes. Wise like I live two lifetimes. He's always kept me in the right mind in hindsight. Still asking God to give me tunnel vision when my sight blind. Asking God to give me high speed to climb heights Cause these heights climb Then he showed me it's about time They think I'm superwoman like a fight crime Cause the verse too strong And I'm coming down the pipeline Sheesh. There's also all different types of ways that you can be of assistance and be of service without having to have direct service. And that was wonderful of you to write the letter. So people don't get that people don't understand the language of the King James Version, right? Or that we have to sometimes bring some of the PhD down to layman in order for people to receive the message. Exactly. And, And the thing of it is, is none of us have ever spoken 16th century English. None of us have. And, and so to give any of us, I have two master's degrees and working on my doctorate and there's language in King James Version I don't understand. So it's not even about how well educated you are. There's just some things that you won't get because you don't have that cultural background, just like there are things that other people wouldn't get from us because they don't have our cultural background. And so we have to understand the language of the culture that we're living in in order to translate what is God saying to us in our culture. God is still speaking. We just have to be able to translate what God is saying into a language we all understand in our culture. And that's what I think the Life Recovery Bible does real well. It speaks to people that are struggling with addiction, that are struggling with step one powerlessness. It shows us powerlessness in the life of Samson. And whenever I went to the men's prison, right, and I would ask them, I said, what was Samson's problem? And they would immediately say, Delilah. I said, no, that was not Samson's problem. Samson's problem was himself. He could mm. not stay out the whole house. Samson stayed in the whole house because he was driven by obsessive and compulsive behavior that was all about his flesh. It was not Delilah. It could have <laughs> had a whole bunch of Delilahs in his life. That's wild because most people do look outside themselves as for something to blame instead of checking, saying it's actually you. It's actually the thing that's inside of you that you have to work on. That's super powerful. Super powerful. I mean, that's basic recovery. If I'm not the problem, there's no solution. Because anytime I look outside myself for the problem, I'm not going to ever get better. Because I can't fix anything outside myself. The only thing I can change is me, my thinking and my behavior. That's all I can work on. So you are not the problem. How I respond to you is the problem, which again forces me to look at me. And that's what's so excellent about those Bibles that I got is that, look, yeah, I get it. There's racism. And, and I'll be the first one to say, yeah, there's systemic racism. There's cultural racism. And they said to me, chap, you know, the system is right. I know it is. And you know it was before you got involved in it. So let's now we still got to go back and look at ourselves. You knew what you was getting into. You knew they wasn't going to show you no love. But yet and still, 
something in your mind told you that you was going to get away, you wasn't going to get caught. And that was a setup. Right? So, right? You set them, you allowed the thing to set you up. Right. Right? right. And now you're caught up in this system. So now, how do I understand? How do I navigate my way through this system, out of this system, so I don't get caught back up in this system again? And then I can get out of the system and teach other young men and young women how not to get caught up in a system that's not going to show them no love. That's Y'all heard it. She said in a system that's not going to show no love. No, it's not going to show none. 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 And it's not about individuals. It's systemic. And that's okay. what we need to understand. See, I got to stop looking at people understand I'm dealing with systemic evil. And when I understand systemic evil, then I understand that evil uses everybody because I've encountered it, black and white people that been hateful and evil in, in systems. Got it. So what I'm doing my paper on my dissertation uh, for school right now is because I, I work as the as the prison ministry leader, and like I said, I thought we was doing something when we was going in there preaching to a captive audience uh, and say, "Who want to give their life to Christ?" And five people raise their hand and we, you know, lead them through the sinners' prayer and all of that. We go back to church and oh, did we have church in the prison today? But what I did not know that I've learned as a chaplain is those five people still go back to a housing area where they still have to navigate and live, where they have to live with people that they may not like in a small area space, somebody that might be bullying them, people that, that have CEOs that may talk to them crazy or they talk to them crazy or somebody's trying to zoom in on them they, and then they trying to run a store or getting high. So you got all kinds of life's issues that they're dealing with that that who wants to come to Christ did not help them understand or navigate through. So it's taught me that we have to do more as a church. The church has to do more. We're not doing anything, really. And the system, right, the prison system has to demand more of the churches. So you get what you ask for. Got it. Right, and yeah. if, all, if all you want, all you settling for is somebody to come preach on Sunday, that's all you're going to get. So I, what I'm saying in my papers, first of all, the prison, the prison needs to ask for more, and the church needs to deliver more. The church needs to understand the population who we're dealing with, the understanding that we have people that have high A scores, adverse childhood experiences. They have high A scores. They have been traumatized as children. They're dealing with trauma many times. So it's not only inside the prison, but how do we prepare the world outside for people that we're going to connect with? And what I'm saying is we need to take programs into the prison that will help us to disciple and connect. Programs like dealing with trauma. Programs like I have a 12-step Bible study that we're doing. How do you set and keep boundaries? A lot of times men and women have, have come out of households where there's addiction, where they've not been taught healthy boundaries. And so they don't know how to set boundaries in their own lives. So those are topics in parenting, how to be a, a good parent, how everything doesn't have to be, I'm going to whip your butt. Right? Right. Every, every right. issue does not have to be, let me get the belt, I'm going to whip you. Because if all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Nail, and, absolutely. And that's all most parents have. Is that let me whip your I'm gonna whip your butt. Right? Get out of my face, I'm gonna whip your butt. 
parenting yeah. classes. We, we are sorely in need of parenting classes. And so things of that nature that help inside, but also prepare men and women to come out. That's what the church can bring in. Showing that God, spending time, discipling, and then having programming on the way out the door. Most people do not understand collateral sanctions. Most of them have no idea what collateral sanctions mean. As a matter of fact, when a, a man or woman is in front of a judge and they've made a decision to complete to a lesser charge that still is a felony or even a misdemeanor, no one ever explains to them the collateral sanctions that are attached to that, that now for the rest of their life, that felony is going to follow them around. For the rest of their life, anybody can look up and see they have a misdemeanor uh, charge against them that they caught to. For the rest of their life, a woman coming out of prison, she may have uh, caught to a uh, felony, lesser felony, but when she comes out of prison trying to get her kids back, she can't go into low-income housing. She can't right. go into Section housing. Right. Right. If, if mama, if big mama lives in Section 8 housing, she can't go to Section 8 housing. She can't wow. stay there. That's a right. collateral sanction. Yes. That, that people don't understand how these collateral sanctions operate and affect their lives. One of the, the things that I learned in Dayton, uh, I used to work with the Sisters of the Precious Blood. And whenever there was a homicide in Dayton, we would go to the site and pray and have prayer with the family. Well, one of the families asked about if the city had any help with burying a homicide victim. Well, I went to the city to find out what they had for help for families that needed help to bury somebody. And they did have help if, only if, the person that had been murdered did not have a, homicide, have a felony conviction. So, so they could not even be buried if they had a, a felony conviction. And that's another problem. Wow. The city would not help the family. Listen how this works. It's the family that's asking for financial assistance to bury their family member. So the the family is going to the city. The city is saying, we cannot help you if the person that's dead ever had a felony. Wow. Wow. Mind blown. Did not know that at all. That's a collateral sanction that wow. is imposed at a local level. But you see, what people don't understand is that local municipalities can impose their own collateral sanctions. The state can impose their own collateral sanctions. And the federal government can impose their own collateral sanctions. So at every level of government, you have collateral sanctions that hit people that have felony convictions. And will follow you all the way to your death. Yes. Yes. Wow. That's what the church has to deal with having advocacy on. That's that's why I believe volunteers and prison ministry, the people that go inside, there's people that help on the outside, and there's also a, a group of people that are advocates that do advocacy. The federal government, the state government, local government advocacy. How do we change these laws? Wow. We have, to, we have to change the laws.
by Dez Speak, Bink, and Iman Omari. You can find their music at Amazon Music, Apple Music, and Spotify. So just in in overall, how long have you been involved in this this area, this field, this reentry? How long how many years? Oh, I've been involved since about nineteen ninety-eight. Wow. And how do you keep your emotional fortitude with all the different things? Because you recognize that when you are servicing to people, you also are helping them or you are also going through what they're going through at the time. How have you kept your mind to not just give up on this or just be like, you know, this is systemic. And how do you keep going to 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 make a difference? Put it that way. Like where where is it that you re-energize or how do you do that? How do you practice self-care in this? Self-care is important. And and I will tell anybody that I am the president and the CEO of the Sylvia Mosley Fan Club. Okay? I take care of me. Okay. I, I take care of me. I go on vacation. Okay. I, when I turned 50, I bought myself a 20-speed mountain bike, which I okay. ride regularly. I work out every day. I pray all the time. I understand and know that the word of God tells me God gives one plant the water, but God gives the increase. I am not responsible for the increase. So because I know I'm not responsible for the increase, that at any given time I'm either planting or watering, it is not my job to make sure that this thing gets turned around. That part of it belongs to God. That's the increase. My part is to either plant or water. And so I'm happy planting and watering. I'm doing my part. Okay. All right. I love that. I love that. Um, so the last, lastly, you know, what would you hope your legacy to be? That made a difference. That, that my life has made a difference in, in some way. My life has made a difference that, that I've had an impact on the lives of people. I believe that we don't change systems. We change people that are in systems. And we change one person at a time, one house at a time, one block at a time one community at a time. And I believe, which is why I'm at the women's prison, that when we start touching the lives of women, we touch generations. Absolutely. We have caretakers of the children. And we're talking about generations changing. I don't believe in generational curses because I don't believe the same God that died on the cross for me is now turning around and cursing me. I believe in learned behavior that people learn some some very toxic behavior from the environments they grow up in. And because it's learned behavior, they can unlearn the behavior. If you don't believe me, look in the Bible. Where did Jacob learn how to lie? He learned it from his mother, Rebecca. But she learned it from other family members. The whole family told, told lies. Look at Abraham. Abraham, the father of faith, pimped his wife out, told her he a pharaoh in Egypt, that Sarah was his sister, lied, and then he got busted because he was rubbing on her, and they could see, and they said, oh, we see what's going on here. That's not your wife. That's your sister. Get out of here and take all this stuff with you while you go. Pimped his wife on the way out the door. So I understand learned behavior. we got some people that have learned some very toxic, destructive, self-destructive behavior, and because they learned it, they can unlearn it. And that's what I'm about. I'm about teaching. I'm not about blaming. 
I'm not about beating people up. I'm about teaching and the same behaviors that are not helping you. You learn them. Let's learn some new behaviors. That's what I'm about, teaching. And so my legacy, I pray and believe that my legacy will be that, you know, Sylvia Mosley took some time and taught me some things. Mm. Awesome. Yeah, you you taught me some things in just a short amount of time that I was able to be in your presence. So much that I made sure that um, I always wanted to keep you as someone as a resource and a contact for Brain Trust. I mean, you are phenomenal. And again, I like to thank um, Reverend Susie Sylvia Mosley, uh, soon to be Doctor Sylvia Mosley. Right. Soon right. to be. Soon to be. Soon to be. One more semester. Yes, one more semester. I mean, thank you so much. Um, if there's any way that we can continue to work with you and do this work and in any way you need us, Fit to Navigate, Mind Body Gym is here. Um, well, let me I'm just say talk. this to you, too. I, I wrote this workbook called You Can't Heal What You Hide. Okay. Growing Through Your Grief. And I initially had written it for women in prison. And the Lord, I, I got woke up one night and God said, publish it. And so I published it. I've been doing workshops here okay. uh, around it, helping people to deal with grief and grieving. And how do I work on myself? Because I can go lay on somebody's couch all day long, but at the end of the day, I still got to deal with me. So how do I deal with my own issues? I've and got, where can people find that book? Where can people oh, order that book? Amazon. On Amazon. It's okay. on Amazon. Yeah, you Repeat it again. Tell us and say it again. You can't hear what you hide, living and growing through your grief. All right. All right. Yes. Y'all hear it on Amazon. He yes. is an odd club published author also. And I'd like to again, thank you for, for being on the show. Thank you, Reverend Mosley, for being on our podcast and sharing your experience. We all know, now know, that you can't heal what you hide. It's time to step up to the plate and really, really get involved in our lives in removing and emotional traumas and healing. Thank you again, Reverend Mosley. Two-thirds of the prison population in the state of Ohio and in 35 states in the United States end up back in the prison population within three years, a phenomenon known as recidivism. Fit to Navigate combats recidivism through wellness programming that has resulted in 0% recidivism. Learn more at fittonavigate.com.